Hello, and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. I'm Juliet Schooling-Latter, and today I'm joined by Jeremy Gleeson, Manager of AXA Framlington Global Technology. Hi, Jeremy. Hi. Good morning, Julia. Um, the technology sector has had a difficult year. Can you explain why this is, please? Um, yes, um, absolutely. It's actually had a very difficult year. Um, you know, at the, at the time of speaking, the tech sector is up down around about 27% in US dollar terms year to date. And that's about 10% worse than the than the broader equity market. Um, multiple factors have contributed to this this year. Um, firstly, from a macro perspective, um, there is the expectations that the global economy is in or going into a recession. And that is being factored into the prices of equities and equities are not been performing well in the face of that significant concern, especially in regards to the growth outlook. Secondly, the geopolitical situation took a significant turn for the worse earlier this year when Russia invaded Ukraine. And then layering that on top of the relationship situation between the Chinese and the US, um, there's definitely been an encouragement for a sort of a risk-off mindset amongst investors this year. And then drilling into the technology sector in particular, you know, during 2020 and 2021, spending for tech saw a quite a significant uptick as a result of many of the sort of trends that took place as a result of COVID. So work from home, school from home, um, e-commerce and home consumption of media and entertainment were all positive um, for the technology sector. And growth for a period of time was, you know, above normal trend lines um it was um it was you know in some ways some we saw we experienced some super growth for, for aspects of the technology sector and then now growth comparisons are just looking more difficult um and especially as you drive into sort of this headwind of the economic slowdown um it is um is creating some very challenging growth um growth numbers for some of the companies involved in the technology sector and that's also being reflected in 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 the in the valuations that we see right now, but it's it's interesting to note actually if you if you look over the last decade, um, prior to twenty twenty two, tech had actually outperformed the broader equity market in the nine previous years, um, and on average over those nine previous years, the outperformance is around about ten percent per year. So with tech trailing the broader equity market year to date by about ten percent. We're kind of giving up approximately one year's worth of those gains made over the previous nine years. But, you know, when we're talking about a down year, which is, you know, 27%, you know, almost 30%, you know, that that sort of that sort of relative number feels, you know, feel, feels that feels that kind of pales into comparison with that sort of immediate down 27% that we're feeling this year. Yes. Yeah, so so rather a, a gloomy picture but how are the companies actually doing have earnings been as expected or, or are they suffering um too uh, we've heard about facebook recently um and redundancies is is this a common thread yeah no, that's a, that's a good question because that's actually something we spend a lot of time doing it's just drilling into the actual fundamentals of what the companies are actually delivering delivering in terms of results and you know i'd say it's a mixed bag you know, it's not by any means perfect, but it's not all doom and gloom, unlike the performance of the stock market kind of suggests. 
Um, if you look at the most recent set of results, companies have been reporting their third quarter results. In terms of upside surprises, tech has performed broadly in line with the broader equity market. About 65% of companies in the technology sector have reported better than expected revenues, and 64% have reported better than expected earnings. And actually, for our fund, um, whilst it's about the same on revenue upside, 89% of our investments have actually reported better than expected earnings. So we feel that the fundamentals of these businesses is, is, is certainly not sort of completely unraveled. Um, you know, they're still fairly intact. Um, but there have been, especially in this last course, some very high-profile disappointments. Um, so you met, mentioned Facebook, but also Alphabet, which is the holding company for behind Google, Amazon, and even Microsoft reported some disappointing or had some disappointing commentary around their results this most recent period. So I think that sort of certainly created some awareness that uh, not all is good um, and rosy for these technology companies right now. For, for Facebook in particular, um, you know, their, their business model is um, you know, firmly based around the advertising world. You know, that's the vast majority of their revenues comes from companies who want to advertise on Facebook or Instagram and pay Facebook for that privilege. And advertising spending is a discretionary level of spending. And it's something that can get hit very sharply during an economic downturn. And it can certainly get hit very sharply when there is um, significant events like that of Russia invading the Ukraine, where brands don't want to potentially risk associating their products, their brands alongside some of the terrible news stories that we've seen come across media during this year. So, you know, Facebook is sort of frontline and center of, of receiving um, or, or being impacted by that downturn in advertising spending. Um, and more recently, um, the company went from sort of indicating that they wanted to continue to invest to help them drive growth, which they've been doing very successfully over the years since they came public, to making quite an abrupt U-turn um, with regards to acknowledging the slowdown and acknowledging that they might have to pare back some of the spending and also make some layoffs um, in order to sort of the right size their business for the current economic environments. Um, so we'd actually taken the opportunity to reduce our investment in the company at the beginning of the year, largely because of those sort of economic and geopolitical headwinds that the company was facing. Um, so our weighting in the in the fund is 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 much lower than it historically has been. Um, but with hindsight, you know, we should have sold that entire position back then. Um, but we don't think their business model is broken. You know, they've got a significant number of users, engaged users across their three main platforms, which are Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. We don't think those are broken. We don't think they're unraveling. We do think at some point advertisers will come back to this platform, but clearly they are going to be facing some challenging times in the near term. Yeah. And, and, and on social media, um, Elon Musk has obviously just bought Twitter. Do you have any views on social media uh, as an investment over the long term? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, actually, because, um, you know, I would argue that at least in the Western world, um, Facebook or meta platforms, as they are now known, has been the only real success in social media. 
Um, there's quite a quite a graveyard of broken social media companies out there. And it's starting to look like Twitter might be added to that list now. So um, I think it's a challenging area for investors, um, for sure. I think it's something that, you know, I think it's, it fits well within a diversified portfolio. But to try to identify just one social media company that you want to back as a long-term winner is, 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 is quite a difficult proposition, given how many social media companies have failed. Um, we've never owned Twitter in the portfolio. We've always been, um, we've we've met with, with the management team and company many times, uh, particularly on my trips to San Francisco. Their headquarters are in San Francisco. Um, but there's been issues with the company model, which I've just never felt comfortable with. Um, and some of them have been sort of come to light, actually, during this whole process when um, Elon Musk has been trying to buy the company. Fake accounts, users with multiple accounts, Obviously, the background of some of the um, the unsavory, unnecessary types of types of um, usage of Twitter, the types of um, um, posts that you get on the platform, um, they've never sat right with us, um, and we've never had a high enough conviction in in the company to want to actually own stock. Whereas Meta, for example, we've we've held for quite some time, um, and actually, one of the things I'm looking at right now is whether if Twitter does decline further, if it does, you know, demise completely, is whether that's actually beneficial for a company like Facebook. Um, one of the things that Twitter has actually done very well is create a bridge between social media and companies being able to engage directly through direct messaging with some of their customers. Um, and if you look at the other social media companies, um, the one that, the one that does actually have solutions for both of those is meta platforms, which is, you know, their Facebook and Instagram social media sites along with their WhatsApp messaging platform. So perhaps that's an element of traffic, an aspect of business, which could actually move away from Twitter um, and towards, towards Facebook or meta platforms over, over time. Right. And, and, and you mentioned, you know, reducing your, your holding in Facebook, but, but I just wondered, have you made any other recent changes, perhaps taken profits or picked up some bargains when uh, valuations have fallen? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we take a pretty long term view of our investments. Um, you know, when we're making a new investment, we, we're looking at a three to five year opportunity. Um, so our turnover is typically relatively low. It's typically less than 20 percent. Um, so changes haven't been dramatic in recent times, but we have constantly been looking at the portfolio and looking at the companies that we invest in and just making sure that um, that the, the, the long-term thesis behind our investments is still intact. And where they aren't intact, we've taken some money off the table or reduced those or sold those positions entirely. Um, so we've, we've, we've trimmed some of our positions in semiconductors um, because we're mindful of the sort of the economic sensitivity of that group of companies. But at the same time, we've also identified new opportunities in semiconductors as well. So over the summer, we built up a position in the German semiconductor company, Infineon. Um, Infineon has a very strong involvement with both the automotive and the industrial sectors. And both those markets, those end markets for semiconductors, still remains pretty strong. And Infineon was trading at very attractive valuations. 
um, based upon both its historical valuation and also its valuation versus its peers. So we felt it was um, a good time to start building up a position in in Infineon over the summer. Um, and then we've also been making some changes around our cybersecurity investment. So once again, reassessing some of the companies that we have owned, deciding whether we wanted to own them for the long term or not, and um, maybe buying some new cybersecurity names because that's an area of spending which seems to be somewhat resilient right now. So we added CyberArk and Splunk to the portfolio while selling our positions in Okta and Rapid7. Right. And and most of the portfolio is invested in, in US companies, but I notice you have more in emerging markets than in the UK, Europe and developed Asia put together. What opportunities have you found there? Yeah, so yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. Um, so, I mean, the, the US aspect probably isn't a surprise. Um, US technology companies have just done such a great job of commercializing the opportunities within the technology sector on a global basis. So that explains our heavy weight in the US. With regards to Asia, particularly emerging markets, it's actually just two companies which makes up the bulk of that exposure. It's Taiwan Semi and Samsung. So Taiwan Semi from Taiwan and Samsung from Korea. You know, they, they might sit within the emerging market component of our portfolio, but these two companies are not emerging companies. They are global powerhouses in their own right. One of the things that we like when we're looking at technology companies are companies that exhibit global strength. And both these companies have been able to do that. Um, they're both leaders in their own right. And um, so hence they make up a, a, a big portion of the outside of the US component of the overall fund. In terms of terms of developed Asia, and that's largely dominated by Japan, um, we've just haven't had any Japanese exposure for quite some time. Um, we have this sort of bottom-up thematic approach to investing, and in J- Japan, you have a lot of conglomerates, companies who do many, many things, um, have many lines of business, and it's really hard to find those sort of pure plays who are really successful in some of the growing areas of tech without those same companies having a lot of sort of legacy baggage, which is no longer growing, might not be profitable or not be as profitable, um, and just are sort of less attractive areas of technology. So we have we have had very little, in fact, no exposure to Japan for quite some time. And then in Europe, it's just been a long-standing issue about identifying, once again, great global businesses but also with the ones that have an attractive valuation. So the problem in Europe is that when a great business appears or is is, 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 is um, well understood, it goes on to get a very, very high valuation, which makes it somewhat unattractive to us from our investment proposition. It's that sort of scarcity effect that takes place in Europe. Um, there are so few great global technology companies in Europe that when the market identifies one, it gets priced very, very attractive, very at uh, very high levels, and that makes it less attractive to us. So we do continue to look. And like I said, we bought Infineon recently. It was trading at a very attractive valuation. Um, we have a position in a company called Darktrace here in the UK, which is a cybersecurity company, which once again trades at a very attractive valuation versus its global peers. But um, many of the other great European tech businesses are very expensive in our view. So we'd rather own some of their US counterparts, which are trading at lower valuations. Right. And and thinking about the next six to 12 months or so, 
how do you think technology companies will will do as we go into recession? Are there any subsections that are better positioned than others? Yeah, so that's that's certainly a you know a question that we're constantly asking ourselves and reviewing constantly at, at the moment. Um, and actually, you know, may, maybe just looking back at a little bit of history might help here. If you if you look at the last recession, which was the global financial crisis in 2008-2009 tech was a horrible place to be was a horrible place to be to begin with um and then put on a really strong recovery and really didn't look back from 2009 onwards and i've already talked about the um the performance of the technology sector versus the broader equity market um over the nine years prior to 2022 so this year we've been feeling a lot of pain uh companies in the sector have started to adjust their businesses for a downturn. Valuations have contracted quite sharply in the space. So whilst it's hard to predict how markets will treat equities, growth equities, or the technology sector precisely in, in 2023, um, we feel that a lot of the pain has already been felt in the same way that a lot of the pain got felt very early during that 2008-2009 global financial crisis within the technology sector. So then if you take a step back and look at the, the, the future and the opportunities and the fundamentals of the businesses within the sector, we think tech will play an increasing role in our lives, both personal and work-related. We think that many of the trends and themes that are in play right now um, are still just in their infancy and will continue to proliferate and create opportunity for the next decade or so. So, so we think that the long-term picture for technology is good, um, but clearly we have to sort of sort of go through this period of digestion and um, sort of resetting of expectations and reinstilling re, re confidence in the equity market as well. Um, so if you look very nearer term, we think things like cybersecurity and aspects of the semiconductor industry should fare better. Um, we also think that some of the um, subscription models that many software companies have taken on board over the last several years should also have aspects of resilience in the downturn um, because these companies are not, not, not dependent on new license sales, but are more dependent on existing customers continuing to use their products. And with software now firmly embedded and ingrained in many businesses around the world, it'd be very hard those companies just to switch off the use of that software um, without damaging their actual own businesses. So, so those are the areas that we think should be a little bit more resilient in the near term. But longer term, we think that the opportunities are still very much intact for the broader technology sector. Good, good. And finally, I always have to ask, what is your favourite gadget at the moment? <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's that time of year, um, the holiday season up, uh, upon us. Um, so, uh, um, so firstly, my, my kids have told me that I'm not allowed any more golf gadgets um, because they don't seem to be having any impact on improving my golf at all. So, um, so, so I have to look elsewhere to answer this question. Um, so, one of the things I've noted is that some of, if, if, if for people who like music. Um, there are some really impressive portable speakers on the market now. Um, so once upon a time, portable speakers were sort of fairly poor quality. 
um, in their in their sound simply because of the the size of the unit and the fact that they used to run off batteries and you know that's no longer the case. Changes in technology, improvements in semiconductors, changes in back techn- battery technology have meant some of these products um, are actually very very impressive in terms of their sound quality. So certainly certainly nice um, nice um, ideas for Christmas presents. And if you want to extend that a little bit further. Um, there are some you, some interesting sort of things like um, Bluetooth connected record players that you can buy. So if you want to dig out the old vinyl collection, and actually, um, you know, rather than collecting dust in the corner like mine have been for many years, um, you can get one of these sort of uh, relatively portable record players, connect them to one of these Bluetooth speakers. And actually get to enjoy some of um, your old vinyl classics, which is something I'm hoping to do over over the next few months. Great. Well, that's given me some ideas to add to my Christmas list. Um, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. If you'd like more information about AXA Framlington Global Technology, please visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 